Welcome to Rex's Bible Minute, a weekly video where I talk about Jesus, Christianity, and basically anything along those lines. Um, if you are watching this and you're upset at me because I didn't get it out on Wednesday like I normally do, I apologize. Just being honest, it's been one of those weeks. Uh, I've had a sinus infection all week. Um, when I taught this on Wednesday night, I got about three quarters of the way through it and had a coughing attack and basically just had to wrap it up. So if you were watching Wednesday night, if you were at church Wednesday night, um, this might like kind of fill in the gap, give you the, the full version that I was supposed to do, but it's just, it's been one of those weeks. Uh, just being straightforward with you. So I apologize um, if you were counting on this free Wednesday thing, um, but it is what it is, so uh, hopefully I get it out today. It is Friday currently as I'm recording this. Um, it should go up tonight. If not, it, you'll see it on, on Saturday. Either way, next week we should be back to our normal schedule. Um, and this is the next to last study in Ephesians. We might do one week where we just study and recap and talk about the highlights of uh, this letter, but really, I mean, this is one of the last three for sure. And so um, I've had some great suggestions about what we should study next, Um and I have an idea of what I'm going to do, but you'll just have to wait to find out to see what that is. So that being said, let's get into this. We are in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, one of the most famous sections of the Bible. Um, and if you're new to this whole church Bible thing, you know, don't feel bad if you don't know what this is. But if you've been to church for any time at all, you've probably heard a sermon on this. It's one of the most preached about uh, sections of the entire Bible. Um, so... Bear with me. Hopefully, you'll learn something new. I, I I tend to to try to take a different swing of things, not for different sake, just because I'm a little different. So let's uh, let's see what the, what we can come up with on Ephesians 10 through 17. It says this: Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, be able to withstand, sorry, in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, when we approach this section of scripture, uh, we need to do two things. Number one, we need to establish that we are in a fight. And number two, we need to establish how to fight that fight. What tools we need, that kind of stuff. I mean, you can think of this like, like in a sports analogy. You know, if a, if a football team or a basketball team is going out there to play against somebody and they have no idea about who they are, you don't know what you're walking into. You know, if you can be prepared to win that game, you're going to do better than if you just have to go out there and figure out your, your opponent as you go along. And it's even more important in war. You know, in war, uh, the armies that can study and know their enemy, know their enemy's tactics and how they fight, they can address that and they can fight appropriately. We are in a fight. Spiritual warfare is real and it is, it is, it is all around us. And when I say that, there are two responses. Number one, and to go need mean to go Richard Nixon on you, but there are two responses to it. Uh, number one, you can either like go headfirst into studying that and looking at it, and you can take it too far. You know, you can look at spiritual warfare, accept that it is real because it is real. It's all around us, but you can start to see it everywhere and lose the focus of Christian living. 
of living the life way Jesus told us. Because if everything is comes from a demon or comes from an angel or comes from this or that, then you know you're you're missing the point. Yes, demonic influences are everywhere, and they are behind a lot of big events and and things that happen in your life. Uh, We need to acknowledge that. And more often than not, people don't go this route. But it seems like a lot of people who begin to study spiritual warfare go too far. And so it's important that we we make sure we we stay in a healthy limit of understanding that we are in a spiritual fight, that we do have an enemy. And the enemy is Satan, and he's already lost the war. He's just trying to bring—ruin God's victory party, basically, because— from the time of the resurrection of Jesus to Judgment Day, that's that that's the time frame he has. At Judgment Day, he gets sent to hell, and those who reject God, reject Jesus as their king, they go with him. And so his entire motivation is just to bring as many people with him as possible. And so the, the schemes of the devil and his minions, demons, they're there to just put a wedge between you and Jesus. And that's 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 scary. Because we're facing an enemy that is smarter than you and stronger than you and has more time than you. You know, one of the best ways to truly kind of get in the headspace of what this might look like is the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And this book is, it's actually one half of a project he started but never finished. Um, His entire, the entire project was supposed to be uh, how a, a demon would go about trying to accomplish his task with a human being, trying to keep them from God. And then the other half was supposed to be how an angel would go about drawing somebody to God. And he just, after he, C.S. Lewis did the demonic side of things, he just couldn't bring himself. He didn't have it in him to do the angel side of things. But this book, it's, it's, it's written as the correspondence between a demon and his superior. And it walks you through how th- this man that he's following is is being manipulated and being influenced to stay away from God. And one of the things that's that's peculiar about it, and I think it's brilliant in C.S. Lewis's writing, is they try to make sure this guy never even acknowledges that demons are real. Like they try to get this guy in a spot where he thinks that spirituality and spiritual forces are non-existent. You know, because if you can acknowledge that evil is real and that there are evil spiritual forces out there, and then there has to be a good spiritual force, and inevitably you'll come to the conclusion that there is a God. And so it's just kind of one of those things where it's like as you read that book and you study the Bible and you study spiritual warfare, you, you come to this conclusion that there is an enemy out there trying to keep me from God. How do I go about fighting that fight? Because it can show up in a lot of different ways. It can show up in, you know, at work. It can show up in your home life. It can show up in moods. It can show up in all these different places in our life. And it's all, if anything that can be designed to push you away from God, that, that's probably spiritual warfare. And so we have to be equipped and know how to fight against that. And it, it can't be on our own strength, our own understanding. It has to be on God. So what Paul says here in this section is he says, this is how you fight the fight. This is the tools you need. I mean, any military, any sports team, really, uh, that goes into a fight, into a battle, into a game, they need to have the right tools to do the job. Now, in Paul's day, he's writing in the first century. um, And so at that time and in the world he lived in, Rome was the dominant force. Rome had soldiers everywhere. And this letter was specifically to southwestern Turkey. And in that section, that was Ephesus, the main city in that that part of the world, was one of the five crown jewels of the Roman Empire. So it was a place that Rome was was very heavily involved in. And so if Paul wrote and described armor, the armor he was describing that people would have pictured in the head was probably Roman armor. 
And so what I want to do is kind of sh- go through each one of these pieces of Roman armor so that you can respond to this and understand the parts of the armor the same way that those first century readers would have. Um, now, an- another side note, a lot of times you see on TV, you'll see Roman armor and it'll be like one specific kind. The good news for us is that's pretty close to what Paul's day was. It was pretty close to first century Roman armor, but Roman armor changed throughout history a lot. Same way like our, in our country, our soldiers don't dress the same way and use the same armor that they used 50 years ago or 20 years ago or let alone 150 years ago. Okay, So Roman armor changed throughout history, but thankfully this, the, the kind that we are looking at is the kind that was pretty close to what Paul's they were using commonly in Paul's world. So let's get into this, right? So the first thing Paul says is the belt of truth. Now, a belt for a Roman soldier was kind of like their their signet, their, 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 their most important piece. And what I mean by that is if somebody was to be dishonored, uh, the officers would take that soldier's belt from them. Or if somebody was dishonorably discharged, they would permanently take that belt from somebody publicly. Like a Roman soldier, even when they weren't wearing the armor, still wore their belt. The belt was the symbol that they were a Roman soldier. It was more than just a piece of armor. Now, honestly, it didn't protect them much. Some of them had tassels in the front to offer a little bit of protection, but really, it was more there as a symbol. It showed the world that they were a Roman soldier, and you never took it off. You always had that on, and it kind of was the, the foundation of the rest of the armor. You know, Everything else that a Roman soldier would have worn was built on top of this belt, Paul says that the thing that you can't take off, the one thing that has to be on you at all times, that holds everything else together, is truth. And it's the truth of Jesus. That Jesus is who he says he is. He did what he said he did. And he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And that truth doesn't change. We can never take that truth off. We can't change it. We can't twist it. It has to be on properly and at all times. You have to cling to the truth. That's what Paul is saying with this. All right? Next thing, the breastplate of righteousness. Now, in Paul's day, uh, they used this thing called the lorica segmentata. Now, lorica means armor and segmentata means segmented. So it's kind of like the armadillo-looking plate armor that you see in a lot of movies and stuff about Romans. Um, and it was just that. It was a bunch of plates of metal that were held together with rivets and leather. Um, and that was what allowed Roman soldiers to fight. And archaeologists are, are pretty certain that it was probably the most effective armor of its day simply because... Any of the, the weapons that, that Romans' enemies would have had couldn't have pierced that. Like they're, they're pretty certain that that was the case. It was really, really effective. It wasn't the easiest to move around on, but it was, it was highly effective. It protected the vital organs. And if you look at modern military armor, they wear plates just held in place with little vests, and they really only cover just the top half of the chest because that's your vital organs. You can't live without those. And so Rome was was saying like to protect the vital organs of its soldiers, it, it used this plate armor. Now, what Paul says is he says this is your breastplate of righteousness. What is righteousness? We like to think it means you're a good person, but that's really not what it means. The word there is digaisune, and it it actually means in right standing. Right? So you can be righteous and not be a good person. A righteous person is one who is in good standing with God. Jesus is the only person to ever be in right standing with God because of who he is. But as Paul says earlier in this letter, we have what has been done for Christ. What has been done for Christ will be done for us. 
Christ was raised, we will be raised. Christ was righteous, and therefore we are righteous because of his. Not because of us, simply because we are imparted what has been given to Jesus. And so the, our righteousness, the thing that justifies us, that makes us good enough, you know, that, that brings us salvation, that brings us right standing with God, that's Jesus. And that protects what's vital. So you have to have that. You have to know that you are made righteous because of Jesus, not because of anything you've done or could do or might do. It's entirely Jesus' righteousness given to you, and that is what protects you against the enemy. The enemy will tell you, you're not righteous, you're a bad person. And he might be right, but you're in right standing with God because of Jesus, and nothing can, can take that away from you. So we've had the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. Next, we have the shoes. And this is probably my favorite piece of, the, of Roman armor because, in my opinion, my very unscholarly opinion, this is the reason Rome conquered the world. I want you to think about the way Rome fought its wars, and the wars were fought commonly back then. It, it typically wasn't hand-to-hand -hand melee combat very often. Normally, battles were won and fought through shoving matches. I mean, this is the way wars were fought for a long time. Men would line up together, and they would charge each other and shove until somebody lost ground. And once that side lost ground, that's when the killing happened. I mean, there would be killing up before that as well. But, but essentially, it came down to a shoving match. Not too different from, like, uh, an American football game, you know, where guy, the teams are shoving against each other. And if the offensive side pushes further, well, then it creates gaps and they can score a touchdown. If the defensive side pushes further, they can put pressure on the quarterback and tackle him. Like, it's a shoving match. And that's the way Rome fought its wars. Now, Rome figured out the same thing that athletes figured out. Cleats are better than not having cleats. Roman shoes had cleats on. They had hob hobnails in them. Um, I'm pretty sure that's what that's called. But either way, they had cleats in them. And so what that allowed Roman soldiers to do was not be as picky about battlefields. Because whereas, you know, they, they'd go on a battlefield without these, these spiked shoes, you know, it, they could slip and slide. And, and really, it came down to whoever had better traction won a lot of the time. Rome figured that out. And so they put cleats on their soldiers' shoes. And they could be ready for any battle. It didn't matter if it was a rocky battlefield, if it was muddy, if it was dirt, if it was grass. They they had traction, and therefore they could win versus an enemy that didn't have shoes or had smooth bottom shoes. It was a huge advantage. I mean, just if you played high school football, imagine trying to go up against a, a lineman who had who had cleats and you didn't. It didn't matter if you were bigger or stronger. They would win because they had traction and you didn't. And so what Paul is saying here, he's saying is that we have to be ready. Roman soldiers were ready to go to fight at any battlefield. We have to be ready as well. But ready for what? He says the gospel of peace. Now earlier in his letter, Paul made a, a point, especially in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, to emphasize unity. I mean, that's the whole theme, that Jesus is, is the, the uniting factor of God in the world and that the church is the Jesus' tool for uniting the world. Unity. What is the opposite of unity? It's division. What is unity? Unity is peace. Peace is only possible when there is unity. So he says the gospel of peace. Now a lot of preachers have preached this verse and said it means you've got to be ready to share the gospel. They're not wrong, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is saying we have to be ready to fight for unity. 
that we can't allow divisions within our ranks. We can't allow people to, to split hairs and, and form camps and be divided against each other within the church. No, we have to be united and we have to constantly be ready to fight for that. We have to fight for the unity of the church. We have to fight against division within it. We have to be ready for that at all times. So we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and then the shoes. Next, we have the shield of faith. And this is probably one of the most famous pieces of Roman armor. It's the big rectangle shield. It's called a scutum. And on its own, it's a terrible shield. I mean, if you talk to combat experts and historians, they'll tell you that this shield is not good for solo fighting. It's big. It's bulky. You know, it covers you from shin to chin. I did that backwards, but shin to chin. Um, it, it, but it's not designed for that. It is designed to be a part of Rome's war machine. It was designed and highly effective at what it was designed for. It was designed to be locked together with the shields to the left and to the right of it. So that when Rome faced an enemy and they marched in that battlefield, they presented a wall. And that didn't matter how many arrows the enemy shot, the guys behind the first row would hold their shields up and create a roof. The guys in the front would create a wall. And they would be walking around as a human tank, basically. And these were highly effective for that. But on their own, they're useless. If you were a guy walking around your own and you were fighting a battle and you had this shield, it was heavy, it was big, it was bulky, it, it got in the way, it didn't allow you to move very well. The Roman shield was designed to work in team. And Paul says that our shield of faith and that is faith and that God is our shield. The Psalms are full of it. Psalm 28, 7 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to Him. God is our shield. There's Psalm after Psalm that says that. But God, the theme we see in the New Testament over and over is that God works through us and with us and for us. And so I think the point that Paul is making is that while a Roman shield on its own can maybe do some good, it's really designed to work well as part of a, a team. God uses the church to hold itself together, that we are supposed to be united, that we are supposed to lock shields together as the church. And that's how we're supposed to endure the, the arrows of the enemy, that Paul says. That when you've got somebody right next to you on both sides lifting you up when you're weak, that's how you survive the onslaught. That when the enemy whispers lies in your ears, you have people surrounding you telling you, no, those aren't true. Listen to us. Listen to what God's message has. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy. That when you start to doubt, you can turn to your people to your left and to your right and ask questions and be honest with each other. That's God being our shield. He works through us, through your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what this means. All right? So that gets on to our next one. Next to last, it's the helmet of salvation. Now, helmets are kind of generic. I mean, you look throughout history, there's all different kinds of helmets. You have you know, the horn helmets, you have the Greek helmets, the real tall ones, you have the itty-bitty ones. You, I mean, there's, there's helmets. Every, every military throughout history has had helmets. Every sports team has used helmets. Even soccer, there's helmets in it. Like, there's, like, there's all different... Every, every time that there's been a place that people could get head injuries there have been helmets whether it's at works workplaces construction sites or on the battlefield everybody has known you have to wear a helmet why because you can't operate without a helmet you know you might be able to you know lose an arm lose a leg get it take a hit to the belly but and keep on fighting but your brain goes down you're done and that's why helmets are part of every military ever and so what paul is saying is that you have to put on something to protect the one thing you can't live without 
And where does the enemy attack us most? He attacks our salvation. Because that's the base of Christianity, knowing you are saved. We're supposed to move on beyond that very quickly. Once we know that Jesus took care of, of salvation and we trust it and we make sure he's our king and we're loyal and allegiant to him, that's the foundation of Christianity. We're supposed to get way beyond that. But if you're constantly doubting your salvation, doubting that, that Jesus really did take care of your eternity, you're never going to progress. And so we have to put on our salvation, not the knowledge of our salvation, not knowing that we're saved, but put on salvation. P take it up, put it on, own it. Jesus saved you. You are saved and you are being saved and you are being transformed and you are a child of God. Don't let the enemy lie to you and tell you you're not because you are. Put on that helmet and don't take it off. Never take it off. You are saved. Don't doubt it. Next and last, the sword of the Spirit. This is the one weapon Paul points to. And this, the sword is kind of like the shield. The Roman sword is called the Roman gladius. It's a really short sword. It wasn't very long, maybe three feet long. And it was designed for one thing, poking. It wasn't designed to slash, although they could use it for that. It was designed to poke. And they, they've, they've determined that you really only need to stab somebody just like an inch and a half for this thing to be lethal. It was a short sword designed to stab somebody with at close range. And like the shield, it was a terrible sword for one-on-one hand-to-hand -on -one -hand combat. Because you had no range with it. If somebody had a longer sword, you were at a huge disadvantage. But that again, Rome didn't do things by accident. Rome constantly evaluated their weapons and their tactics. And the way Rome fought, this sword was highly effective. Because again, their shoes allowed them to win the shoving match. The, the shields protected them during the, the arrows and whatnot. And so once they had the advantage of, of knocking their opponents over, it was just a matter of quick stabs. It was the entire system was designed to get to that point, and it was highly effective. The weapon that Paul tells us to use is God's word, that we trust in God's words to fight our fights, to be our weapons, not on our own understanding. You know, if you read the book of Acts, there's several accounts of people, you know, trying to cast out demons and deal with this spiritual warfare stuff and, and essentially just getting whooped, like getting beat. Like there was even one story where these guys were using Jesus's name, even though they weren't followers of Christ. And the demons rose up and said, I know Jesus, but I don't know who you are and whooped them. Like it's not our own strength that we rely on. It's God's. We have to cling to his words, to his promises, to his truths. And we have to use those as we spy, fight our spiritual warfare. We cannot trust in our own understanding. We cannot trust in our own hunting. The enemy is too smart. They're too well equipped. They've been watching you and probably your family for generations. They know you better than you know yourself. We fight spiritual warfare. When we're dealing with, with the influence of the enemy and the tactics and the, the plans that they have against us, we have to turn to God's words and God's promises and God's truth. And we have to rely on that and use that as our weapon. You know, everything we've talked about build up to that point that when it actually comes to dealing a blow to the enemy, it's not even our own power that does that. It's God's. We have to be locked into a family, uh, into a church family. We have to be ready. We have to cling to the truth and never take it off. We have to own our salvation and put it on and never take it off. And then when it comes to dealing blow, we have to trust in God's word to, for the power to overcome the enemy. And so as we wrap this up, I do want to make a quick mention of this. That when Paul says the word of God in this verse, he's not talking about the New Testament. Because I don't know if you know this, but 
he was actively writing it at the time. Uh, and the other apostles and Jesus's followers, they were still, the, the New Testament wasn't a thing when Paul said these words. He was talking about the Old Testament, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the prophets, the Torah. So just, just know that, that he was talking about the Old Testament. Number two, I, I ran across this as I was studying this. Um, Paul was quoting the Old Testament for a lot of this section. I'll read you a few of the passages. Isaiah, these ones come from Isaiah, but what Paul did was he took messianic prophecies and passages, and as as God had done for Jesus, he does for us. And so all of these weapons are really things that, that were describing the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus, and are then imparted to us. So let me just read these three verses, and that'll be it for this, this video. It says this. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How... Beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news to the, of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah 49.2 says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And then Isaiah 11.4-5, through 5, it says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and he side with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I hope this week was helpful, and it helps you fight the, the spiritual warfare that you, that you find in your life. Uh, if you have any questions, as always, feel free to reach out. Until then, I'll see you next week.